Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to be tonight. Please turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Once again, we are in the final installment of our study on the Holy Spirit. think it has been timely for all of us. And this message, especially important for us to get, because this is the message that we need to be able to receive the power that we need for the work that God wants us to do. So tonight we're talking about the Holy Spirit upon us. And this subject is probably one of the most divisive subjects in Christianity because so many people have different opinions and beliefs about how the Spirit works. And if you're an unbeliever or a person who's not a Christian, you probably feel really weird about us talking about the Spirit. And that's probably because you've seen abuses of it and you've seen demonstrations that were whack, you know, on YouTube, Benny Hinn or what, you know, I guess I can say people's names. But, you know, like the televangelist crazy people that just kind of like, they kind of like slay people in the Spirit. And you look at that, that's your idea of like Holy Spirit stuff. And we need to correct that because if we are going to be Christians and we say we believe in God, at some point we're going to have to say we believe that the Spirit still does stuff today and he works in our lives. Um, and I'm going to make a case for what that work looks like tonight. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. This is after Jesus... Um, has resurrected and speaking to his disciples, verse four, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are just empty vessels coming to you, asking for you to fill us, to use us, to speak to us. We want to be in submission to your will. And we want to be guided by your direction. And so, therefore, we submit ourselves to you in this time of Bible study. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever sing the song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Fresh on Me? And you ever sing that song and you think, what do we actually mean by that? What do you expect to happen? Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on me. And then, like, a tongue of fire just over your head. I'm like, oh, it happened. The spirit fell upon me. Or do you expect to feel like all fuzzy inside? What, what do you expect to happen when you, when you pray and when you sing, spirit of the living God fall afresh on me? Here, what we see is the disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven were told to go and make disciples. But before you do that, to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit who will come to give you power. Power, what does that look like? What does that mean? And what is this power for? Many Christians don't really know what to think about the work of the Holy Spirit 
being upon us because it seems like the hardest part of Christianity to explain or defend. And as I said in the beginning, that's because we see the abuses of those gifts, whether it's tongues or healings or prophecy. But I want you to know that Paul the Apostle saw abuses and misuses of the gifts of the Spirit, but that doesn't mean that they weren't real. This is why he wrote entire chapters of the Bible directed to this end. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23. He's writing to this church at Corinth and says, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? So just picture this. Paul is writing to this church and he hears the report and he goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this. Literally, there's people that aren't saved that don't know Jesus. They're coming into the church and everybody's speaking in, in unintelligible languages. And the people are walking right out saying, that's weird, I'm never going back there. Now he doesn't say that it's fake. He doesn't say it's not real. He doesn't say cut it out. He gives instructions and parameters to use the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the, the abuse and misuse of the gifts do not negate its reality and validity. Very, very important because a lot of you may be more on the conservative spectrum where you're kind of just like, I don't know, I'm very skeptical. I hear things and I'm like, is that really a tongue or is that just people mumbling? And you just, you want to see it. You want to see it in demonstration and you want to see uh, proof that this is actually of the Lord. And some of you may be more charismatic. And because of that, you're thinking like, hey, that's fair game. I mean, that's awesome. Anything that's done is in, done in the name of Jesus. So if he really didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't happen. And so you're open to all kinds of different things. But I want to bring us to the Bible because the Bible is our rule for practice and for living. And we want to make sure that our lives are in conformity and our gifts are in conformity to what the scripture teaches. So Baptists, may say that gifts are not for today, whereas charismatics may say that all the gifts are in operation, prophecy, tongues, etc. But I'm more concerned on what does this book say and what did the early church believe? So look at verse eight again, Acts chapter one. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, here's that, that phrase, upon you. We talked about the Holy Spirit being in you and with you, Here's a different verb, upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Now this word power, many people have committed what is called eisegesis, bad eisegesis of the text, which is looking at the text and extrapolating something that it does not say. They look at the Greek and they say, well, well the Greek word is dunamis, and we get the word dynamite, from the Greek word dunamis. So you, and maybe you've actually heard this or you've said this, so, you know, no judgment there. But they'll say that the Holy Spirit power is this explosive, dynamic, dynamite power. But that is false. That is not the right way to interpret that word. How do I know that? Well, do you really think that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing this, he says, oh, power, like dynamite. You know, like the explosion, they didn't have dynamite when Paul was writing this, right? Instead, this power it's talking about is not this destructive, explosive power. Rather, it's a creative and restorative power. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16 uses the same word when it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then also for the Greek. So that word power is talking about a force. Think about it this way. Electricity is a force. And all of us recognize how much we depend on this force when there's a power outage. Suddenly, if you have an electric stove, you can't cook. You, you're on your computer, now you're on battery power and you have a limited time before it goes out. You can't see because all of your lights are off. We as a society have depended so much on electricity, so much so that if we did not have electricity as a society today, we probably wouldn't be able to adapt as some cultures have. But there are many inventions that have sprung from the very first one, from the, their origins where, they, where Thomas Edison had a light bulb and it replaced using candles and fire. And then from there, you have people using all kinds of devices and inventing all kinds of devices like television, like your computer, entertainment devices, your phones. And my favorite, in the airport, you have those moving walkways, which I actually found out there's an actual word for it. It's called a travelator. Did anyone know that? Yeah, it's called a travelator. The best thing in the world. And you guys know, those fools that refuse to use the travelator, instead, they just, you know, they're running. And you just stand still and you're good. You just kind of just coast. Electricity is a force. It's a power. And because of it, there's been a lot of innovation that has been possible. And I would argue that perhaps it's possible that by neglecting this vital aspect of the Christian life, that we are limiting our creative and restorative power and resources. See, the works of the Spirit are given for a purpose. God wants us to have the Holy Spirit, not just to be with us for guidance, not just to be in us for salvation, but to be upon us for power, for the work of the ministry, for a witness to who God is and the building up of God's church. A church that does not have the power of the Holy Spirit will be a lifeless church will be a church much like the ones we read in the book of Revelation when we went over that this summer. So this is why in verse eight, it says, you shall be witnesses. He had a job for them to do, but he told them before you go about this job to receive the power source in order to accomplish it. This is why Jesus didn't just resurrect and reign all in one shot. I mean, he did it, right? Like, Resurrected from the dead. Everyone goes, oh, you really are God. That's amazing. Why didn't Jesus say, all right, let's go. Let's take over. Let's do this. Instead, he ascended into heaven and he chose the primary means to spread his good news, his gospel, was to be through his disciples, through the church. There are many more people that Jesus wanted to come to know him. 2,000 years later, here we are. And we know of him because of people, people filled with the Holy Spirit who shared the love of Jesus with many others. So to get the job done, Jesus sends his spirit. And we look around and we see the world that we live in, which has been largely in the West, anti-supernatural. We believe in science. We trust the data. We, we want to look at things and know that's empirically verifiable. But the same God that did those miracles 2,000 years ago I would argue, wants to do the same today. He still wants to work in miraculous ways. Now, some people believe 
that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit began in, in 2,000 years ago with the disciples, but it tapered off over time. It was there to authenticate what God was doing through his disciples and beginning his church. And then it kind of just chilled out after, after a while. But I would ask, does it seem rational that God would give all the witnessing power in the beginning and taper it off towards the end of time? Or rather, would it be the opposite? Shouldn't it be the case that if God is returning soon, we would see more demonstrations of his power today than ever before? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Just look at this one verse. It, it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And all my men servants and all my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you see this line of logic here? We would have this power for the very purpose that whoever calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. That's what it's for. Now, why would God still call us to the Great Commission without the power of the Holy Spirit? That to me makes absolutely no sense. That God would give it to the original disciples and then say, oh, but you know, after a while, I'm just gonna run out of energy. So just like, they have technology, they have social media, they have a whole bunch of stuff. They don't need my spirit. To me, that makes no sense. So I believe that this is an important aspect of our understanding of who God is in order that we would carry out the mission that he has called you and I to do. And here's the other thing. God always loves to use people who have literally no abilities, no strength. I read this last night, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. It's one of those like common like Hobby Lobby verses. And then you like forget it exists after a while because you're just like, oh, I'm sick of that verse. Then I read it again. I'm like, oh, that's what I needed to hear. It says Isaiah 40, 29, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. If you feel weak, weary, exhausted, the good news is you are in a perfect position to find the strength of the Lord. That was, that was good for me, especially with this past week, being exhausted from caring for the family. You know, we're in the hospital for four days, this is Jenna's fifth C-section. Please keep, uh, uh, keep praying for her. It's been rough for her because the baby is doing fine after a day or two and monitoring and just ready to go home. But for her, it's been a slow process for her. So we sit in the hospital a couple extra days. We got out Sunday. And since then, she's not allowed to lift, you know, heavy objects or anything really. But then all of her kids, all they want to do is just like pounce on her and pounce on the newborn baby. So I'm just playing defense all day. I was telling some people as I walked in, it's like, I don't know if they really recognize that this baby is a human being. Tatum keeps on asking, can I pet her? And I'm like, Tatum, it's, it's a baby. It's a real baby. So that's what I've been focusing on. And I've been exhausted, waking up early, staying up late. And then with the baby, that's uh, cluster feeding, if you know what that is. So every 30 minutes or so that she wants to breastfeed. So it's just crazy. Not getting any sleep. I feel exhausted all the while. I'm still like, oh, what are we going to do for the fall and home groups and ministry? And I have so many things to do. 
And I remember, oh wait, the weaker I feel, the more I am properly positioned for God to infuse his strength in me. So let that be good news for you. He gives strength to those who have no might. So as you're looking at all the imperatives, you should do this, you should do that. You should evangelize. You should really clean up your act. You should you start thinking about all those things. Don't forget and don't neglect the helper who is here to give you power. And as we have that power, we're to use that to be a demonstration to the world that believes that there is no God. And as people are becoming more and more secular, the world is getting more dark, we can shine more light. But now let's talk about how does the Spirit empower us? Well, the Spirit empowers us in two ways. Number one, the gifts of the Spirit. And number two, the fruit of the Spirit. So the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts would be more of the upon and the fruit of the Spirit would be more of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's read chapter two of Acts, verse one. Let's see what it looked like. When the day of Pentecost had fully come and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. Side note, real tongues, real languages. Okay, keep going. Verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. So listen, let's, let's kind of like demystify this for a second. The purpose of the gifts were not to be weird. They were to be a sign to a world that's unbelieving. So originally when tongues were given, which you can just say is the gift of languages, the tongues just makes it like weird word picture, right? Just think of tongues as languages. God gave them a special ability for that moment to speak in different languages so they would be a sign and witness to those who were unbelieving coming from all these different areas. And the gifts of the Spirit are always for that end, to be a witness to a world that does not believe in him and to be an encouragement and edification of the church that Jesus died for. So God's purpose and his strategy is that all would be saved and that he would give the ability to draw all to himself. And by neglecting these spiritual gifts, we are neglecting the ability for us to be properly edified the way that God designed it and also missing out on opportunities for people that don't know him to come to know him. So what is a gift of the spirit? Wayne Grudem, who's a 
theologian in his uh, systematic theology has this definition. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. So there's a difference between sign gifts, the stuff that we look at as miraculous, and spiritual gifts that are more of just empowerments and abilities used for the work of God, for the edification of his church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So there are different manifestations of how the Spirit gives us abilities to edify and to evangelize. And they may look different from person to person. And that's because God has created all of us unique. But the point is we are all to exercise and use those gifts. So just as the Holy Spirit has been a down payment of our eternal security, it's important to know this. Spiritual gifts are a foretaste of our eternal experience. So by, by us having these spiritual gifts, it gives us a little bit of heaven. When we have the gifts of healing, it's because in heaven there will be perfect health. If there's a gift of tongues or languages, it's because in heaven there will be unity of language. We're not going to need translators. We're not going to look at each other confused and like, oh, I don't, know what, I don't know what to do with this person. All of us will have that true unity. So these spiritual gifts give us a peek and window into what God is like and what heaven is like in community with him is like. So you see in the Bible a number of places where there are lists of some of those gifts, but they are not exhaustive lists. In other words, they are not lists that say the spiritual gifts are limited to these 12 or these 10. I'll give you two separate lists found in different portions of the Bible. One list will say apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, that's a spiritual gift that everybody needs, by the way. And tongues. But in another portion, it'll say word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, discernment of spirits, interpretation of tongues. And in other places, it'll even say that singleness is a gift, believe it or not. The same word, charisma. It's a God-given grace upon you to accomplish what he desires. So what you have right now, that is a gift. And it is an ability that God has given you and he wants to use his Holy Spirit to empower you to edify and to evangelize. So what do you have? What ability that God has given you, what gift has God given you that you are to use? Now, maybe your question at this point is something like, well, I mean, how good at, at my gift do I have to be in order for it to be a spiritual gift? Like how talented do I have to be? How much do I have to do in order to be able to say, all right, I know what my gift is. Well, don't ask yourself, am I competent? Am I good? Am I skilled at this gift? I'm really good at administration. Therefore, I know that's my spiritual gift. Instead, ask yourself, is anyone edified by the usage of your gift? Is anybody edified? Maybe you feel like, oh, you know, I'm not the best teacher. I feel like maybe you teach my spiritual gift, but I don't know if I'm the best one. You don't have to be the best teacher, but... Do you find that when you're sharing scriptures with other people, when you're sharing what God has spoken to you in the word, that people are going, thank you. That's like, 
that really just makes it simple to me. I understand exactly what that passage means. Maybe you have the gift of teaching. Maybe you just have a knack for every time that you're talking to somebody, they're like, how did you know? Like, that's the verse I needed for today. And God's giving you prophetic words for those moments. And those are spiritual gifts and you should use them. You shouldn't compare it with the level of somebody who's like a mega church pastor and you're like, well, I just don't know if I'm good at encouraging like that guy. Or like a seasoned saint who's like in his 80s and everything he says is just like so good, so well-spoken. Like Brian Higgins, he's like 80 years old, even though he's like not even 30 yet. And he just has a way of like saying things. He's like, I wish I had that gift. And because you feel like you're not as good as some other people, you disqualify yourself. I guess I'm not gifted. I don't have any spiritual gifts, but you do. And it should be cultivated because you will be able to reach people that I can't reach. And that's why going into this fall, as we start home groups, it is so important that you recognize that you have a gift that God wants you to cultivate to reach people that no one else can reach. If we're only depending on my gift, Lord, help us. We'll probably have this amount of people in the room always. But if we depend on what God is doing in you and the Holy Spirit, what he wants to do through you, then we're gonna see massive amounts of people come to faith in Christ. But do you trust the Holy Spirit? You trust me. If you start trusting the Holy Spirit, then you'll start to see him do amazing things. D.L. Moody had this quote. says, it is not for us to pick out some place of service and then ask the Holy Spirit to qualify us for that service. It's not for us to select some gift and then ask the Holy Spirit to impart that to us that gift. It is for us to simply put ourselves entirely at the disposal of the Holy Spirit to send us where he will, to select for us what kind of service he will, and to impart what gift he will. He is absolutely sovereign, and our position is that of unconditional surrender to him. So I'll make it really simple for you. Make your job really, really easy. All you have to do to know what your gift is, is just listen to what God tells you to do. It's simple obedience. Your job is not to go, like, go out and just like work really hard and trying to figure out like what you're good at. And you're just like experimenting like, okay, today I'm gonna try tongues. Tomorrow I'm gonna try healings. All right, bring me to the hospital. Like you can't come in here, no visitors, doesn't matter. Like I'm going. Gifts of healing, here we come. Like you don't have to do that. Just listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, which is why it's so important to wait on him, to be in prayer, to be in fellowship, to read the Bible every single day. Practice those spiritual disciplines. Fast every now and then. Unplug from your phone. If God leads you to it, maybe detach from a meal so that you're more in God's presence and you recognize we can't live without his spirit. So it doesn't have to be this mystical thing, right? When we talk about spiritual gifts, it just talks about you have an ability and you should use it to God's glory. But there are sign gifts. So let's talk about those things. First of all, let's talk about prophecy. It's one of the most confusing gifts in the Bible. Prophecy. Wayne Grudem, who I read his systematic theology and I quoted him before, I like his definition. He says, prophecy is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Prophecy is not telling the future. The prophetic gift as the Bible understands it in the New Testament is not, I think I'm a prophet because I just knew that that person was going to have a, a car accident the next week and it happened. So I'm afraid to like prophesy because it might come true. Like that's not what it's talking about. Prophecy we see 
is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So this is not the same as Old Testament prophets. Don't get those two gifts conf uh, confused. Old Testament prophets are more like New Testament apostles. If an Old Testament prophet got something wrong, they were to be stoned and killed because they were speaking on behalf of God. And when people in the New Testament theology get this wrong and confused, they think they're supposed to tell exactly as if God is like downloaded it to their brain and like, all right, I need to say exactly as God told me. And you go in a trance and like, I believe that you are called to enter into the ministry by marrying a person from Uganda, you know? Like you just have this vision of like, it's supposed to be like this weird mystical thing. And it's not. Prophecy is simply telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind, which means, here's the key. People who may have genuine insight from God may tell it wrong or not choose to say it at all. They might describe the prophecy in a way that's inaccurate, but it could still be from God. How do I know that? Well, there's passages in the Bible where it talks about, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, that we're told that prophets can actually interrupt each other in the church gathering. So one person has a prophecy, they're speaking, it's like, oh, if the other guy's speaking, like, wait your turn. Like, if it really was God speaking directly, downloading to their brain, why would God interrupt each other? Instead, you're to hear the prophecy, and the Bible says, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good. What does that mean in 1 Thessalonians? Well, that means this. Don't outright say, like, I don't believe in prophecy. Like, take it and, like, listen to it. Then sift it and hold fast to the good parts. Leave out the bad parts. Because some people may say crazy stuff. Because they're using human language to describe what God has spontaneously brought to mind. This also happened to the Apostle Paul. There was a guy who uh, named Agabus who was prophesying to Paul in the book of Acts. And he says, you're going to be bound by the Jews and you're going to be delivered to the Romans. And actually it was the reverse. They're bound by the Romans and he was handed to the Jews. Now, why did that happen? Perhaps Agabus had a vision and in that vision, he saw an angry mob of all, all Jews and Romans together, and he got the two confused. Genuine prophecy, genuine experience, he described it inaccurately. See, if God was downloading to your brain, you're just supposed to utter every single word, and you got it wrong, then yes, you should be stoned. But there are no prophetic revelations of that sort today. And that's why the Bible is truly the full counsel and revelation of God. The apostles functioned as the Old Testament prophets. What they said is as if, this is where the Bible talks about it, all scripture is given by inspiration, God breathed. It's given by inspiration of God. So we know that this Bible that we have, this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. But the prophecies, once again, can't underemphasize this, could be said wrong. Why do I say that so, so many times? Because so many people throw it all out because they're just like, I don't know. I just feel like that guy wasn't completely right about what they were saying. They're just so skeptical and they despise prophecies. And other people take it as the word of God. They told me I have to move to California tomorrow. And they got the other things right. So this, this must mean I need to go. And you like, you start falling away from the Lord because of what human beings have told you. So, when you are told a prophecy, when you're shared an exhortation, giving comfort 
we are, we are to be listening carefully, skeptically, but also sorting it and sifting it through scripture. This is why the Bible says not to hold fast to prophecies, but hold fast to teaching scripture and apostles' doctrine. Now, all of us should desire to do that. Well, the Bible says so. First chapter 14, verse one. Gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So he's speaking to the church and he's saying to you and to me that all of us should be desiring to do this. Prophetic words can be, would also be given the Bible verse. And it can be as simple as this, that you're given a Bible verse to somebody else and it's a perfect exhortation. God heard me as that person as if it's the answer to what I had just prayed. There's your prophetic word. All of us should desire that. Why shouldn't we? When we have those instances, we're having um, an experience of Jesus in an intimate way. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12 says, even so you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So the church should be a place where we practice these gifts regularly. Now, let's go to teaching. We talked about prophetic gifts. Let's talk about teaching. Teaching is pretty self-explanatory, but it's explaining and applying scriptures. So as I said before, maybe you're a person that doesn't feel like you're good speaking in front of a thousand people, a hundred people. You don't have to be. Maybe God hasn't called you a thousand people to a hundred people, but maybe you're really good at explaining on a one-to-one basis. And don't dismiss that because that is a powerful gift. There are many things that, that you can do one-on-one that I can't do right now. A conversation where you're helping walk a person through what it's like to follow Jesus. And I'm hoping all of us do this fall. So maybe it's not one-on-one, but maybe it's a couple people. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a home group. There are different sizes of people that require different skills. And so you shouldn't dismiss it outright just because you don't have a preaching from the pulpit gift. Now, tongues. As I said before, it is also, um, also can be just called the gift of languages. Now, this one's really interesting for this reason. The gift of tongues is not anywhere in the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about that? Nowhere in the Old Testament will you see an instance of the gift of tongues or languages. And the gift of tongues can be a sign for an unbeliever. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy an unbeliever and uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all and he's convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So that one is probably one of the more controversial ones. I know some people believe that tongues can be a heavenly language. But I believe that the scriptures tell us, as I pointed out in Acts, that these languages are known languages. And its purpose is to be a witness to the unbeliever who speaks that other language. And God may give that for a season and for a time. I guess no one's going home anytime soon. Which is, I don't mind that. Hopefully you can hear me. So gift of tongues can be a sign for a person 
who does not believe. But here's where people get it wrong because the Bible does talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we're not getting to tonight. But on your own time, check it out. Um, there are rules. There's a structure. God is not the God of confusion. Let all things be done decently and in order. There's a way to practice it so it doesn't confuse the heck out of people. But I'm, I'm going to say this because I think a lot of people do dismiss a lot of these sign gifts and miraculous gifts. Recognize if you believe that the gift of tongues has ceased to exist, then there are entire portions of the Bible that are irrelevant to us today. Like you, you should completely skip over 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because it's not applicable. You just read and go, oh, that's really interesting that they did that back then. It has no relevance to us today. Um, I don't personally speak in tongues. I am more of a skeptic, but I'm also open but cautious, I guess you could say. Lastly, let's talk about the gift of healing. Now it's important, it says gifts of healings. It doesn't say that you have the gift of healing, like you're a healer and you go around healing people. At times, God may choose to heal people. And at times, God may choose to not heal people. We may not know God's ways and his purposes in this life today, but he knows what he's doing. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for healing because we haven't witnessed it or because we think, well, God's gonna do what he's gonna do other, and, um, regardless. Because as we talked about last week, some things God will not do unless we ask first. So he wants to accomplish his will and perhaps he's waiting for a person to stand in the gap and to pray for his will to be done. I know my old boss, uh, Marvin, who worked at the gas station, or he, I worked at a gas station, and some of you know him. I worked there for five years, and he's the guy who never went to a doctor. He'd break his arm, and the next day, he would uh, be back at work, working on cars, and uh, I would always be like, hey, Marvin, aren't you going to wear your sling? He's like, oh, I don't need a sling, and he'd be motocrossing when he's like, you know, 55, and so he's just like a tough guy. And then for him to get a brain tumor and then spinal tumors was devastating. I remember seeing him back in January. And to be honest, I was like a weepy baby. It was really embarrassing. Like I really cared about him. And to be there and to see a man who I'd always seen as tough, strong, never goes to the doctor, never gets sick, to see him in such a weak, vulnerable point where I really was thinking, all right, this is it. This is probably the last time I'm ever going to speak to him. His speech is slurred. He couldn't talk at all. It was very hard, like, having that last conversation, hardly able to make out anything he's saying. And uh, so just pray with him. And we'd all been praying. Every single day we're praying for him because I thought, this is a man who served God with all of his heart, and now he's like a Job. You know, all these things are happening to him all at once. He was given uh, a 1% chance to live, and he was given two weeks to live back in January. And then a couple of months later, uh, Marvin calls me on my cell phone. And I'm like, what, what in the world? And I, I knew with COVID and everything, like no one's allowed to visit him anyway. Knew he got sent home and he was at his house rather than being in, in the, the facility he was at. And he, like, he's speaking normally. Like he wasn't mumbling or anything. He's speaking normally. He's like, hey, you remember your Subaru that broke down? I'm like, I finally fixed it. I'm like, are you at the shop? He's like, yeah, I'm at the shop. And he's just talking normally. And I was freaking out. Like, what the heck happened to you? And so... Turns out, so he's, he's not completely healed fully or anything like that. So we still have to pray for him. But uh, so turns out that his doctor that treated him at, at the hospital, uh, who gave him the 1% chance to live, he, he thought that Marvin died. And so when Marvin was just like, you know, it's starting to reverse and I'm starting to have the symptoms again, 
he called the hospital and the doctor freaked out. He's like, I need to see you right now. Like this is, this doesn't happen. Two weeks live and you're, you've been living for the past six months. So he goes in and it turns out his brain tumor completely disappeared. It's gone. And that's why he's able to speak again. That's, that's like absolutely nuts. And that's crazy. Now, some people may say, oh, well, you know, those things happen. No, it doesn't. It doesn't just happen. Um, now, we don't know. Like, it could be tomorrow that God takes them home. We just don't know. But I can tell you that prayer definitely did work in this instance. I witnessed it with my own two eyes. And that, so as soon as that happened, the first thing I thought was just like, man, it worked. Prayer worked. At the same time, it's just like, I think I actually, somewhere along the line, after praying for months on end, I was just like, I don't know. Maybe nothing's going to happen. You feel like this despair, like not, it's just all going to fail. But that's where we can't lose heart and can't lose hope. Because it could be the case that God wants to use your prayers to heal somebody. So don't dismiss it outright. If we believe in a real God who resurrected Jesus from the dead, should it not be possible that we could see gifts of healing today? So all that to say, do you have to be a Christian for the Holy Spirit to work through you in power? That's a good question, isn't it? And I would say no. You don't have to be a Christian for the Holy Spirit to work through you in power. Here's the proof. Matthew chapter seven, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there are people that are gonna see Jesus face to face one day and say, but look at all the stuff I did in your name. And he's gonna go, yeah, we never had a relationship. They were never saved. Interesting. And this is such an important point. And this is why I can't like end this section without talking about this. So many people see a genuine work of God in someone's life and think that that vindicates, vindicates the individual performing the work. You'll see people who are in charge of entire Christian universities and you'll see their work and they'll stand behind them saying, God is with this person because look at all that they've done. But even non-believers can be used by God to accomplish his purposes. How do I know that? You're telling me Judas didn't do a single miracle when he was with the disciples? He blended in perfectly. How about the fact that people on a regular basis may fall into sin? And some people say, well, like, we need to bring it back into the pulpit. I know they committed adultery and did all, did all these things, but look at what God did with them to build this church and do these things. And I'm saying that is a dangerous way of thinking. Instead, know that miracles and spiritual gifts, these are to authenticate a message, not necessarily the messenger. Just because I'm up here telling you things and you may feel like, wow, God's doing all this stuff in gradient, doesn't mean that it says anything about me, but it says something about God. So we have to have balance there because some people dismiss all this of saying, well, then oh, the whole university is corrupt. Everything's corrupt. That whole church is corrupt because they have a corrupt leader. Maybe, but don't dismiss the fact that God can use people even that are turned against him. Okay, let's quickly finish up with the fruit of the spirit. Talked about the sign gifts. Now let's talk about the fruit of the spirit. What do we actually mean when we pray and ask, God, please fill me with your Holy Spirit? Why do we pray for that? Don't we already have the Holy Spirit? If you're a Christian, aren't you filled? Well, I'll read you the verse, Ephesians chapter five, verse 18. It says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, 
but be filled with the Spirit. He's speaking this to the church. Not saying they don't have the Holy Spirit, but you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same way that people may be drunk with alcohol, not, well, not the exact same way, but this, I mean, it's his metaphor, so blame him. You are to be under the influence of God and his Holy Spirit, directing you, guiding you, using you. So don't think about it like this. Some people think about like two-tiered Christianity, those filled with the Holy Spirit, and those that are subpar Christians not filled with the Holy Spirit. Those that have the sign gifts and the tongues and all the stuff, and then the people that are subpar Christians. Don't think about it that way. Think about it this way. Wayne Grudem, and I'm quoting him a lot, but I think his systematic theology is great. Um, Wayne Grudem says, think about being filled with the Holy Spirit like this. Like a balloon is filled with air, even if it's a tiny balloon, but it can always take a little bit more air. You can always be more filled. Continually filled is the tense there in the Greek. We're to be continually filled with God's Spirit so that over time that we grow in our relationship and our walk with Him, that we sin less, that we become more sanctified. And that's why we start to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. So here's the key. Can a non-believer exhibit the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Here's what I would say. Any fruit that a person produces by the flesh will be manufactured and be like a tree that has stapled on, taped on fruit, but not fruit that resulted as a natural byproduct of abiding in the vine. If you look at two different trees, one that has fruit that's grown naturally, another one where you just kind of staple it or tape it on, it may look the same from up afar, but as you get close and get to know someone, you see all the flaws. You see it's all been a show. And a person who does not have the spirit always has to work to try to manufacture the gifts of the spirit. Always needs to try to look joyful, peaceful, always needs to try to look like they're loving, but deep down inside, they don't have it coming naturally. So to be yielded, to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that you make your home in Jesus. Doesn't mean that like every single day you have your routine. Routines are great, but the primary thing that you're doing is that Jesus is your Lord, your Savior. Everything is filtered under, um, everything is in submission to him and his will. So that the way that you eat and the way that you drink, everything is done to the glory of God. The way that you're a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, the way that you're a son, a daughter, a parent, everything that you're doing is done in the name of Jesus and directed by his will. So that means that Christians, if we really have the Holy Spirit and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we should look different than the world. And if we're not, the answer is not start pasting fruit onto your tree. The answer is to be going deeper in our walks with him. So the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law, which means that you don't need the rules because you're in love. You don't need people to tell you what to do and like, all right, really get your act together. This is the time. I don't know how many times I have to remind you. When you're in love, you don't even think about it. No one has to convince me to stay home with my child right now. No one has to tell me like, Ellen, you really need to stay home. You need to make sure you're feeding that baby. Well, I can't feed the baby actually. Not yet. Which I'm fine with. Totally fine with that not being my rule. But you know what I'm saying? Like, 
No one has to convince me to love my child. I'm in love with my child. Do people have to convince you to love God? Do you need sermons? Do you need motivational speakers to say like, all right, start loving God? Which is ironic because the Bible says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those commandments are only possible if you have a changed heart. If you have believed on him and trusted in him for salvation. So Galatians 5.24, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So you're saying, I don't want to live sinfully anymore. You're recognizing that every time that we sin, hey, God forgives, but there is destruction associated with it. It's not just the case that we're just like, well, I mean, like you probably should do the Christian thing and don't move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend until you're married. They wouldn't just say that because the Bible says not to do it. We say because we know how destructive sin is. And if this is God's design and God's best, anything opposed to it will always keep you from knowing God more and loving people more. It's just a fact. It's like, well, I know the Bible says, like, don't lie and stuff, but I feel like white lies are acceptable because there are people that, I just, if I tell them the truth, they're going to think things about me and stuff. There's a reason why God says you need to tell the truth, not just because he is the truth, the way, the truth, and life, but every time we lie, something happens to us. It's easier to lie the next time. When you commit sin, it's a little bit easier the next time to do it. And before you know it, you start making more and more choices in the wrong direction or the right direction, depending on what type of person you determine to be. That's why people are struggling with sins to pornography. People are struggling with lust or anger, or it's just easier to keep on doing what you've always been doing. So be careful of what kind of person you're honing and shaping, what kind of character you have. Because if you're not living by the Spirit, you will always be overcome by the flesh. And the end result of the flesh, James says, is when, it's full, when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Okay, let's conclude because I've gone long enough and I know it's a lot to take in. So how do we get the Holy Spirit? Do you guys know? If you want the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit, for him to come upon you in power, what do you got to do? Is this a, ma a magic formula? If I read the Bible three times this year, the third time, I will be infused with the Spirit's power and people will be saved. 3,000 people will be saved. Now, how do you get it? Do what the disciples did. Wait on the Lord. If God's giving you a task, he's giving you a mission, don't move until he's given you his Spirit and his power. Sit before him. Wait on him. Say, Lord, I know you have a calling on my life. I know you want me to do things. But before I enter into that call, I need your strength because without you, I'm going to die. I'm going to be toast. Before I witness to my friend, before I share the gospel with my friend, I first need you to fill me. I need your words. Before I teach anybody, before I take on this home group, before I, anything that you do, you're saying, I need you, Jesus. About six years ago, I went to England for a mission trip. And uh, seven years ago, actually. Some of you were on that mission trip. Before that, I, I did a year of doing high school ministry as a youth pastor, and I was waiting to get out. I told people, I don't want to be a pastor. I never want to be a pastor. I'm literally doing this because they had nobody else when Andy Dean left for the Bible college. 
So I was full in despair mode. I would teach, had some fun, but literally I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I felt crushed by the weight of people's souls hanging over my head. Like it's just too great of a responsibility. So I thought it was a trap by Satan, actually. I thought that Satan had crafted the scheme, tricked Pastor Lloyd and Pastor Kevin at the time, he was assistant pastor, and tricked them all and said like, ah, we're gonna get this guy. And he's gonna totally fail at it. And then he's gonna fall into sin. And then everybody's gonna just like, be like, oh man, that's, that'll be it. That's Satan's strategy to take me out. So I was just waiting for the day. And I'm just like, oh man, how, how am I gonna get out of this? And, and we went on that mission trip. And on that mission trip, our goal was to go in Cambridge, just sharing the gospel with people. And somewhere on the trip, if you're on that trip, it's like the Holy Spirit in power came upon us. And it's, the story's too long for tonight. So, and we already went kind of long. But I will say this. There were not just tears, not just emotions, but there was a sense of like God's presence with us. So much so that it's like the messages, the words that were shared, the verses that were shared were all in confirmation of what was happening so that all of us kind of left with this boldness that none of us had experienced before. We started going out evangelizing people and sharing the gospel and all this stuff. But then the real evidence is when we came back, everyone says, oh, great, you had this mountaintop experience like every mission trip, and then it's gonna fade, and it didn't. And not only that, the people on the trip started encouraging, exhorting, and empowering people that didn't even go on the trip. So that people that are serving today in ministry here at Gradient are still the byproducts of what God did seven years ago. I remember being in the staff meetings and all the staff were commenting on like, there's something different about our church. Our youth group expanded like almost double in size by that, that November. People started getting saved left and right. And to us, you know, like we're never going to be in the news. It's not going to be like Christian headline, like 3,000 people got saved at Calvary Chapel Oldbridge. I mean, maybe, I'm not denying it, but to us, we knew God was doing something. And today, I'm looking back and saying, I want God to do something with us. I wanna see that happen again. And that only happens if you, are, you and I take the challenge and are willing to wait on the Lord. Let's pray.